You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. My guest this week is Meb Faber. He's the co-founder of Cambria Investments. He's written several books, each of which presents kind of a unique style. It's a little bit contrarian oftentimes on ways to invest money. He's written a ton of white papers and has his own podcast called The Meb Faber Show, which is one of my favorite podcasts and I think probably the most useful one on investing that I listen to. Is there anything I skipped there, Meb? No, sounds great. What made you choose investing as a career out of school? So, like many people, it's a bit of a winding path. You know, as a young adult, you kind of have dreams of what you want to be when you grow up. And and for me, you know, it hasn't necessarily been a straight line of what I wanted to be as an adolescent, which is probably a professional baseball player. But, you know, went to to school for engineering. So I started out in aerospace and and then shifted towards biotech and biomedical engineering, which I loved and, and still do. It's very much a hobbyist interest to me, but had always had a great interest in investing and always invested on my own, both as a youth and then and throughout college and now after professionally. And so really started working out of college as a biotech equity analyst, so kind of in the middle of those two fields, and then kept gravitating more and more away from the biotech side of the bench and more towards the quant side uh, investing and uh, you know that path which may have taken a decade you know led to the founding of Cambria in 2006 we started managing money in 2007 and uh, it's been a decade you know overnight success a decade in the making and I think we're knock on wood hopefully gonna cross a billion in AUM uh, this quarter so it's been a been a long windy road and uh, it's been a lot of fun congratulations that's no easy feat for sure have you always wanted to have your own company yeah, I mean, I think things you learn, uh, you know, there's a lot of romance to be an entrepreneur and starting a company, but even particularly with investment management, you know, we often tell people that the business of money management and managing money are two totally different things. And a lot of people see the sexy side of being a hedge fund manager and all the money you're going to make and how much fun it is, and it is a lot of fun. And the rewards can be exceptional uh, if done well, and and it's a little luck sprinkled in too, but the business of managing money, the day-to-day of it, whether it's you know dealing with government agencies, dealing with angry investors, signing 10,000 forms and paying very significant amounts of money to uh, you know service providers and lawyers and everything else, it's uh, it's hard. And then you know on top of that is the challenge of you know being responsible for a lot of people's livelihoods. And so the, the romance of being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur is certainly it's great. And it's right. <clears throat> I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. And there's been a lot of, you know, late nights and early mornings and red eye flights. But it uh, when it when it works out, it's it's really one of the best possible career paths. And you know, m- many entrepreneurs will tell you it's it's kind of self self selecting. You know, I, I don't know that I I could uh, do anything else than uh, what we do currently. Yeah. What do you think makes someone a good fit for being an entrepreneur? High tolerance for pain, probably. The biggest challenge you see is for most entrepreneurs is. The you know the, the the every day you face just the inability to give up and the big challenge of that. So I live in Los Angeles, and you see this a lot in the media field too. Whether you're an actor or a producer, very similar to being in in the investment world, where it's really big numbers game. A lot of people want to take your job. A lot of competition, and, and particularly investing, some of the most intelligent minds in the world, but. At some point, you know, if you're not having success or it's a struggle, you know, there's there's that daily doubt, which is, does it make more sense for 
me to hang this up and move on to something else? Would I be better suited doing something else? And same thing, you know, I, I was liking it to acting. Or if you haven't had your big break by, you know, a certain year, a lot of people give up, you know. But on the flip side of that, you always have the example of uh, Anthony Hopkins or someone who may have had success later in life. If you look at two of the most successful hedge fund managers ever, particularly Julian Robertson, you know, he started his fund at 48. In today's sort of age, that seems like a dinosaur, you know, but the, the, the challenge of the day-to-day and all the doubt is certainly the hardest part. But um, so, yeah, tolerance for pain and, and inability or unwillingness to, uh, to throw in the towel. I'm really interested in that ability to deal with that incredible uncertainty and that doubt. I don't know. I mean, that, that seems, that's something that I'm kind of working, working on understanding a little bit better myself. And there's so much randomness in this world. The best pieces of advice I've ever heard is from, it's actually a hedge fund manager, and I'm fairly certain he wasn't referring to what we're talking about, but was was talking actually about a math student that came and asked him the question and said, said, should I either study this particular topic very deep and become, you know, the world's expert in this one very niche area, or should I get a very broad-based education in, in math, you know, so that it's a little interdisciplinary and I can kind of, you know, work across different fields. He said, look, you know, I can make the cliche either way. And so the same thing with being an entrepreneur, starting companies. It's easy to look back and say, yeah, it's obvious, you know, the, the Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or Warren Buffett. We could go pick those stocks or they would succeed. But on the flip side, there's, you know, how many thousands of examples were there of even good ideas? I mean, I have friends that started a social network in the late 90s and, you know, went under too early. So, so it's not just, are you good and will you not give up? There's also an element of luck and timing too. And that's just kind of the, the law of large numbers. There's so many people trying to do what we're doing in this market economy that it's, uh, it's not easy. So at what point do you think that people should just quit? It's a personal decision. I mean, if you think about it this way, is hey, look, you got a family, you got three kids, you're having trouble making rent. That's a lot harder question to, to answer than if you're, you know, single and responsible for no one else, you know, and you can eat one burrito every three days and, and get away with not having any money. And so it's a, it's a very personal question. You know, the best advice we tell people in general on being an entrepreneur is it's always easier to have a job and do it nights and weekends if it's an idea that, you know, can handle that. You can always work uh, after you put your kids to bed and, and do it with the comfort of, a full-time gig and then once it gains traction and you got a pretty good idea of success but but nothing really breeds hunger for that success more than necessity so whether it's being poor or you know being slighted in life whatever that drives you but yeah it's uh, it's it's still a challenge that's interesting so about with your own business at what point did you start seeing traction you know investment management is is kind of a unique space where if your funds or strategies or ideas are performing well. You know, everyone will crown you a genius, and money will flow in. Uh, usually, to their detriment, the investors' detriment. People chase returns or whatever the hot fad of the day is. Is you can look back over a hundred years. I was just reading a another book on famous bubbles called uh, financial fiascos. I believe this is the name of it. But you know, you learn that nothing is really new in history. And on the flip side, you know, you. There's so much randomness in the world. You could have a great investment approach that could go five, even ten years of underperforming and still be a valid approach. And so that's a big challenge. So for us, you know, we it's been a slog for ten years. And, you know, after three years, people say, Okay, you're not going out of business. 
I like you, but you still only manage $50 million or whatever it may be. And so, you know, it's much easier for me to trust a Goldman Sachs or a Vanguard or Schwab than to give you your money. And so I, and I totally sympathize with that. And so each year and each dollar of someone else, you know, blessing, blessing you with it makes it easier. But, you know, even 10 years on and 950 million under management, you know, it's, it's really kind of in the last couple of years when the institutional side is, is really, you know, gotten on board. So it's, it's, it's taken a long time. What helped you survive those first few years? You know, I mean, I was blessed to have a partner who had a very long-term time horizon. I mean, my partner, Eric, didn't take a salary for like the first six years of the company or something or eight years. So, you know, the ability to bootstrap it and to have cash flow to, to withstand, you know, was, was certainly a, a big thing for us. We've actually done two crowdfunding rounds uh, or private investment rounds for accredited investors uh, over the past few years where we've raised about three and a half million for the actual operating company, uh, which is pretty cool. So we have maybe two dozen uh, investors that, that invested into the actual parent company, Cambria. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's taken a while and we did it kind of the old fashioned way where neither of us came from that world. We didn't spin out of an SAC or a, a big fund. And so had to, had to kind of learn it all from scratch and build it from scratch. And it's taken a while, but we're finally, finally getting there. So speaking of Eric, that's another thing I wanted to ask about. What appealed to you about working with him? What worked well in that relationship that you wanted to um, get into business with him? You know, something like Hemingway once said, you should only work with people you love. And that's an easy thing to say, of course, but, but it, you know, I, I believe it to my core that particularly small companies, culture is so important. And, um, you know, we, have, we still have a small group, seven people. And so Eric, you know, certainly was a good partner. I mean, he came from a VC transactional legal background kind of a, like a more traditional banking, whereas I came from research and portfolio management. So it's a good complementary skill sets. You know, a lot of people say that when you try to find a founder, it's, a, it's great to have that. It's not required, but we get along well. Never really had crosswords in the dozen years we worked together. So, but on the flip side, you know, having a small team, you got to make sure that, that there's good chemistry across the board. And that's really hard to manage, particularly if you get one or two people that you know, you go through hard times, there's tough decisions to make. You got to fire people, downsize. Um, and so running a business, you know, can be emotionally, psychologically very challenging. But Eric's been a, been a great partner the whole time. How's your time break down in a typical week? What are the areas? Today so I've been staring at a stack of books on my desk that I really don't want to read as part of a, a research project and, and white paper I'm writing. So I've been procrastinating most of, most of the day today. So I'm happy to do the podcast because it keeps me from writing this paper. You know, most, most of, we're a bit different as a company where, you know, we don't have any salespeople and almost everyone is involved in running the company or research. And so we've been a very heavy research driven or organization. And one of the reasons, you know, is when you bootstrap it, you don't have money to pay a sales force of hundreds of people like to compete with a Vanguard. But the good news is, is we've focused on content and, the beauty and the drawback of the internet in this day and age is that it gives you a huge soapbox for better or worse. You know, you put out interesting content and, and people will find it. You put out stuff that's, you know, going to make you look like an idiot and everyone will also find it. And so, you know, we've, we've really focused on that. It was a little unintentional at first. You know, I published my first white paper in the journal portfolio management over a decade ago and I'm actually writing an update to that paper, which we'll put out later this year. Um, 
But, you know, since then, I put out a dozen white papers, six books, probably almost 2,000 blog articles. So, uh, and now you mentioned the podcast, which has about 70 episodes in. So that's a lot of content. And whether it's useful <laughs> to people or not, I don't know. It's, it tends to be fairly heavy on the, on the quant and investing side. So we'll never get a Jim Cramer size audience. But thankfully, that's the beauty of the Internet, too, is you can drill down in these tiny niches of someone who is interested in, you know, value-based tactical investing or uh, particular income and dividend strategies. So it's, uh, that's kind of been our focus. You know, we may at some point have to build out the marketing and sales side simply because it's, it's probably a, a necessity for a firm like our size. But uh, to date, you know, I, I spend most of my time doing research and writing. Well, that's a pretty good way to spend your time. That's one of the things I most admire about what you guys have done is um, how successfully you've done like content marketing. So mebfavor.com is actually one of the reasons that I decided to start my own website and podcast. And it's early innings, but I figured really? I, needed to, I, needed, I needed to just get it started. Yeah, That's good, man. Well, that's uh, the, we, I, I used to have a, a poster in my bathroom at home, but it was from the Southwest Airlines founder. And it's, it's along the lines of, and I'll probably massacre the quote now, it's like we have a strategic plan. It's called doing things. Something like that, meaning, you know, just get out and start doing it. And, you know, so many people, particularly with content production, are hesitant, you know, because they want it to be perfect. So they're writing a script or a book or a blog post and, you know, they end up never doing it. So, you know, it's certainly that doesn't mean just put out a bunch of crap um, because in this day and age, you're competing with every single possible outlet of really good people, you know, putting out. Uh, content that will compete with what you're doing. So it's uh, you have to be thoughtful, of course, but you know I would certainly err on the side of, of getting it going. So kudos to you. So back to your own business. What are some things that have surprised you most since starting it? Oh boy, good question. With with professional money management, it's I mentioned earlier, it's it's a bit tough. You know, so we we manage exchange traded funds. We have ten of those, and so public investable investable vehicles anyone can invest in and there's now you see the daily press articles about the flood of money going into ETFs you know away from the high fee world and that's great awesome awesome sea change and evolutionary sort of advancement from uh, a lot of the high fee world that we've been in for the past few decades so it's so a great positive on the flip side there are so many of these ideas that get launched that I scratch my head and is like that is the stupidest idea I have ever heard. And if anyone invests in that, they're a moron. You know, summary. And then that product will, of course, raise a billion dollars or something. And so I'll say, what, you know, what do I know? And then on the flip side, I'll say, man, this fund idea, and not just ours, but, but others as well, what a wonderful you know, fund that's based on academic research and it's, it's well put together and it's low cost and it's much better than XYZ out there. And it'll be crickets and not a lot of people get interested. And so one of the biggest challenges in our world is people are often, and this isn't just aimed at individuals, institutions and professionals as well, people are often their own worst enemy. And so in many cases, they will chase the, the hot potato of the day of, of what's working or some you know shiny new object only to, to kind of burn their hands and, and regret it and, and three years later focus on whatever the next hot thing is. And so it's, it's a consistent psychological and behavioral struggle 
to sort of stay the course. But the good news is, is if you're a good fund manager and doing the right things and the funds do well, what they're supposed to do over time, that sort of bubbles up to the kind of the cream just rises to the crop and it's almost impossible to not get noticed. You just got to be able to survive. And so, you know, so what I've kind of been a lot of my research message over the past few years in particular is trying to begin being trying to get American investors to allocate a little more correctly, at least not having these major biases towards what we call home country bias. For, mm-hmm. So for U.S. investors, as an example of the stock global stock portfolio, the U.S. only represents about half, but most U.S. investors put around 70 percent in their own market. And so, uh, you know, trying to say, and, and, and in particular, we're, we live in a world where foreign stocks are much cheaper. So you have the ability to at least move towards what the global percentage is. So stuff like that, you know, and, and the frustration and challenge of trying to get people to think uh, independently and question a lot of kind of these closely held beliefs that may or may not be true. But it's, but it's, I think it's a worthy cause because, you know, you're talking about people's pension funds and retirements and livelihoods. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's an area that I think there's certainly a, a lot to improve on. So my, my biggest surprise is the consistent nonsense that gets marketed and invested in, but hopefully in the long term, it, those, those companies and funds will go out of business anyway. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you can make yourself crazy, um, by like watching all of the, like what could have been just the, the dumb ideas that stick. Yeah, there's a, there's a website called, God, what is it called? It's something like If I Bitcoin or something. You like type in, had you put $100 in Bitcoin in 2012, how much would it be worth? You know, say, you could do that exercise with anything, you, Facebook or back in the day, IBM or Microsoft. Yeah, uh, it's like completely unproductive thinking. So it doesn't tell you a thing about like what you should be doing now. Hindsight regret will, will yeah. causes a lot of a lot of problems for sure. Guarantee the winners is to invest in the broad market, but that's not the gambling and concentration that most people want. They want lottery tickets, so usually, usually that doesn't work out. So you talked about getting people to actually change their minds, which is something I've kind of come to appreciate. It's just like so much harder than you would think it would be. What's worked well for you in more successfully influencing people's thoughts? Well, I mean, look. Let me preface this by saying is that by far the best investment approach is finding something that works for you. So we actually tell people is, look, I'm not out there saying this is how you should invest or this is the correct way to invest because for a lot of people, it's different. So my mom, for example, is happy to be in lower risk securities and sit, have a bunch of money in CDs and own real estate and not muck around with the public markets that much. And she sleeps well at nine and is totally happy. Whereas other people, if they said, Meb, I would put 100% of my net worth in bank deposits that have no risk and I'll earn one and a half percent a year. That's fine. And if somebody comes to me and says, Meb, I only buy dividend stocks for income and I put 100% of my portfolio on stocks. Cool. You know, you do you. <laughs> but what, what I will Even say, for dividend stocks, Meb. Yeah, don't even get me started on those. You know, we, we try to convey at least the, the simple, correct ways to invest. And, and there's a, it's, it's very, very simple to invest and do a good job of it. To invest well is simple. You know, the famous, famous investing quote, investing... Is simple, but it's not easy. And the main reason is is the things people do to, to blow themselves up. So usually that's the the classic, um, you know, buy, chase performance, and sell during a bear market. That's a very you know emotional way to invest. The the second biggest is to totally ignore fees and taxes, which almost everyone does, and they pay 
this big, the best thing Wall Street has ever done is to convince investors to accept an annual management fee because it gets skimmed off the top and they never see it. But I guarantee you, most investors, if they had to go walk down to the bank once a year and hand, you know, their their portfolio manager a briefcase with twenty thousand dollars in it, they probably wouldn't do it. So for the, for the same reason. So there's a lot of basic mistakes where you know if you look at some of the predatory practices of Wall Street, you can avoid. And then once you've done that, are there other mistakes that people make as far as asset allocation and and the correct way? The, the biggest mistake there is often a misalignment of sort of the risk they think they're taking and the actual risk they are taking. You know, so if you were to tell an investor that has, hey, I'm young and I got all my money in stocks, say, okay, well, you have to be prepared for that portfolio to decline 50%. And in many cases around the world, it's declined over 80. So can you say goodbye to 80% of your portfolio and stick with it? And if you can't, then that's the wrong portfolio. So there's a lot of nuances, but in general, the, the most important takeaway for everyone is to find a sensible approach that's that's right for them. And then the biggest challenge on top of that that makes this world so much harder, but also interesting, is that a lot of people don't know what's the right approach for them until they've gone through a couple hard times. I was going to ask, how do, we, how do people figure that out? Is it a trial and error thing? Usually they lose all their money or lose a lot of it once or twice and then learn that way. So even, even so an asset allocation portfolio that's going to lose a third at some point. And so you, you tell a young investor, so say a young investor in their early 20s listening to your podcast and try to explain, explain what it's like to have a bear market and or lose you know, half your portfolio. And they'll say, yeah, you know, I'm rational, I'm young, I can do that on paper. And then when it happens... And it also coincides with a recession and you just got fired and you can't pay rent and you have to liquidate the portfolio because you can't eat. So th- there's you know, a lot of things that until you go through it, it's really hard to convey that information to someone that somehow you're going to be a rational actor when you know, Lehman Brothers is failing and banks are imploding. You know, and every day on TV, you see the CNBC or the stock market. And so it, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to convey that. So you try with education, but really until people live through it, it's uh, so the best thing to do, young people can do is lose their money or blow it up while they're young and learn the lessons when they, they don't have much money. Because if you're, I guarantee you, if you're a 60 year old or a 50 year old with four kids and kids in college and having to pay a mortgage and everything else and you learn these lessons, it's, it's uh, can be life alteringly bad. So we tell people if they're going to, they're going to do the dumb stuff, do it early. So in, in your own personal life, who are some of the people that have helped you most in your business journey? You know, I think if you look at a lot of the famous quant or just investors in general, it's, that's the beauty of, you know, reading books and white papers and research pieces. I mean, we send out a, a curated list to um, a bunch of professional investors called the Idea Farm, where we're essentially trying to find the one or two best research pieces each week. So it's a very similar concept where I'm looking to these people. So it's a lot of names you'll be familiar with. So reading, and I, I have a stack on my desk of a lot of the famous um, kind of interview investment books. So like the Market Wizard style books or Inside the House of Money by Drobny. And just like looking at the bookshelf, it's a lot of the famous, you know, the, the Rob Arnott's and Cliff Asnesses of the world. But Buffett and Charlie Munger, reading all of their historical writings, we have uh, in our book, well, the, inside the house of money, we write 
in the back, we have a bunch of reading lists from famous hedge fund managers, so books that Warren Buffett has recommended and other hedge fund managers said these are these are great books. So sitting down and, and reading and reflecting on a lot of these famous investors, I mean, I could laundry list for a long time, some really good ones that are, that are not to be missed. And, and then in some cases, it's not even individuals, but actually organizations, you know, that put out the quality research. So there's a lot. And that's, that's also a, a problem in and of itself, because trying to curate that huge flood of noise is, uh, can be really tough. So in terms of your business, is there anything you do differently if you had to start over? Other than a lot of the get lucky, you know, and, and do things that, uh, you know, would certainly short, short going into the 2008 crisis, of course. Um, you know, it, uh, I don't think so off the top of my head. I mean, sure, there's like no brainer things to, to, to want to do early. I mean, I think we've grown at the right pace. I think we've been thoughtful, forged great relationships, worked really, really hard. You know, I, I think given the uptake in ETFs, and the technological advances we've seen with robo-advisors and everything else, would I have started even earlier in that world? Sure. You know, I, I think the at the evolution to this, to the ETF structure has been a huge positive for most investors. But, you know, you, you, as I mentioned before, if you're a small company, you got to try to de- always deploy resources thoughtfully and at the same time be prepared for things to implode or at least come up with some worst case scenarios. So, you know, we, in our modeling for the company in and of itself, we say, look, we got to be prepared for 50% reductions in assets because of a bear market or October 1987 style event. And it makes, makes it a little more challenging to, to predict with certainty revenues for a company like ours versus, say, a retailer. But you never know. So you just mentioned, like, working hard. Like, how many hours a week were you working in the early days? You know, it's it's... For someone who loves what they do, it's kind of a continuum. So, you know, I go home and I'll be reading books or white papers or writing. And on Sunday, I may go to a coffee shop and do some writing. Or I'm sitting here with a stack of a dozen white papers while I watch the Broncos on TV. So, you know, I mean, to, to say that it's kind of like your entire life, it sounds, you know, crazy because obviously I have a lot of. Um, great relationships with friends and family and I'm very active with traveling and, and sports, ex- exercise, everything else. But, but what I'm saying, a lot of the interests in my free time are also what you would consider to be work. So it's, it's hard as far as putting on a number, being an entrepreneur, it's like a 24 seven sort of, uh, situation rather than just, you know, clocking it at 40 or 80 hours a week. Yeah, I mean, I get that. So a question I got from uh, listeners, I'll just read it verbatim. How does Meb manage time for various relationships? There's so many demands on his time. So how does he decide how much time and who to invest his time with when building and maintaining relationships? Well, that's beauty of being a quant is I'm not spending all day talking to management and doing earnings calls and you know going to visit suppliers. The, the beauty of a quant is once you have the theoretical research, it kind of runs itself. That's, that's a little bit of a stretch, but in general, you know, most of the portfolios that we manage are emotion-free and just based on logic and rules. So that means your time is freed up to, to do other things, whatever it may be. And we're always doing more research, but a lot of the stuff that we implement, uh, the theory at least, has been around for 100 years. So whether it's value investing or trend following, those are both concepts that have, have really been around for, for 100 years in the making, a century. So... 
you know, as far as the times for the relationships and everything else, I mean, on a personal level, I, I find it pretty easy, but you know, it's, it's with family spread out all over the country, it, the, the modern telecommunications make it, uh, incredibly easy to stay connected, but you know, I love to travel and for a quant, I'm very much a people person. So I, every time, you know, I'm on my travel for the rest of this quarter, let's see, I got Reno Tahoe and Dallas and New York and Orlando and Amsterdam and Switzerland and, uh, New York twice. <laughs> so, and San Diego and uh, an event in Los Angeles. So you get, get around and get to meet people and it's a lot of fun. So by the way, listeners, if you're in any of those places, come say hello, shoot me an email. But yeah, I mean, I, for, uh, Someone who works on a job that's as introverted as is kind of quant investing in finance. I I love I love uh, interacting with people. What do you do to manage stress? You know, get get a decent amount of sleep, but also to, uh, you know, I love to exercise through various whatever it may be. If it's playing volleyball or uh, going surfing or going to the gym or going for a run, uh, I love being active. And thankfully, I have a lot of friends that are, that are very active as well. Granted, it may be bowling and beer drinking, but that's kind of activity. So uh, I leave a pr- pretty pretty active life, which you got to kind of have. And, and typically with exercise, too, is when I'm doing something like running on the beach, it's half of where my best ideas come from anyway, uh, not necessarily just sitting at, a, sitting at a desk. How did you spend your 20s? How did you spend free time in your 20s? So 20s, let's see, I would have been my first job out of college, biotech investor, moved to San Francisco, then to Lake Tahoe, was working for a quant uh, research shop or commodity trading advisor, what people call a CTA. Uh, Being in Tahoe is kind of a glorified ski bum. So many days at the office certainly would be going to the office on uh, wearing ski pants. And when 101 hit hit the clock, was definitely running out to the door to get a few runs in before the mountain closed. But, you know, a lot of the 20s was a foundation of for what really became Cambria later, a lot of the research and also the struggle to, you know, finding being an entrepreneur and starting this company. I, I wasn't coming out of a, you know, t- typical wirehouse or big bank or Goldman or Merrill. And the challenges of finding a lot of the hedge fund style jobs that, you know, I'd looked at, you know, didn't happen. And in retrospect, it's like the best thing ever because about three or four of those hedge funds I think most of them don't exist anymore, but learned a lot. I mean, I think there's a good guest we had on our podcast who said something along the lines of your 20s are for learning, your 30s are for earning, and maybe 30s and 40s. And then I can't even remember what the third one was. You're uh, the- owning, for owning. Owning, thank you. Yeah. So um, I just blanked on that. But yeah, the uh, but the concept being is, you know, do whatever you can in your 20s to find good mentors or to, to really set the foundation for, you know, your career and what else you're going to be doing. Um, and I wouldn't sweat so much about building a portfolio or even uh, m- most people's personal finance decisions when they have less than $100,000 are vastly more important than their investing decisions. And so thinking about, you know, getting a good career and the right sort of uh, mentorship is is learning the skills you will need for later is a, probably a much bigger impact than anything else. So, do you think you'll ever retire or change careers? You know, potentially. I mean, it's it's from the same way that kind of pivoted from biotech. I mean, I, I love investing. I think it's interesting. There's a hundred ideas on my whiteboard for ways people could do it better, and but but at the same time. You know, there, there's a lot of other interests I have in, in the last past five years. It's been more media, uh, 
and research concepts, but even extensions of investing in finance, I mean, it's really frustrating to me to not see personal finance taught in uh, school. So I don't know high school in the country that teaches personal finance as an example. Maybe they do as part of a course or something, but I can't think of a coursework that will have more impact on every single person's life than that. But, you know, most schools are teaching, you know, a lot of the classics. And for many reasons, I would argue that's far less impact than learning how to deal with money. Asking a lot of 18-year-olds to go take on $100,000 of debt to go to college, like that's that's a tough decision to tell someone without giving them kind of the tools to evaluate. Anyway, so I don't know. Has any of this experience changed the way you look at life in terms of money or happiness or anything? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of disconnects. You learn very quickly, and this is less related to what I do for a living, but you learn a lot about psychology and the way people think. I mean, most people in the U.S., if you have almost all the studies have shown, people's relationship to money is just kind of just crazy. And after you make a certain amount, and I forget what the the actual kink is, $60,000, $70,000 a year, happiness essentially doesn't really increase anymore. But what does almost every single person spend all their time thinking about and that's how to make more money and then you do these surveys with high net worth families or just it's across the spectrum and say how much money would you need to be happy or the answer across the board is always three times whatever they have a little more right two more years so you learn learning a lot about what's really the purpose of money and and what are you investing for and i think a, a lot of people kind of come to grips with their relationship to money and and you know we had a great podcast guest elizabeth dunn who wrote a book called happy money which is a wonderful book and talks about a lot of the stuff that most people know i think intuitively but don't really put into practice like spending your money on experiences rather than things uh you know so that trip to australia with your family as opposed to buying a, a ferrari but so when you apply that also to the world of investing and finance so many people really try to optimize on the best returns, but almost always can't handle that sort of volatility and pain. So if you if you try to tamp that down a little bit and say, here's a portfolio concept that's a little less aggressive, you know, I, I think that people usually err on the other side. You know, they yeah. take too much risk or too much um, volatility that they don't need. And so... You know, if you were to say, hey, I'm going to make 5% a year and can live with it versus I'm trying to go for 7 or 8% a year and I don't know if I can sit through it and it may cause a devastating, you know, drawdown. I puke it up and, and can't do it. So it's, uh, and is that going to make a difference in my happiness? Having sat down with many people, like the effects of a 2008 are so profound, not just on the portfolio, but also their mental state. It's, uh, it's hard. Maybe you would see it as currently like under the umbrella of what a like financial advisor should be doing anyway, but you think there's a place for someone to help people sort out what their priorities are and kind of figure out how how they can use money to have the best life possible for them? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of pl- financial planners do sort of head in the, in, into that area of life coaching, you know, and, and particularly with a nod towards finance and building a healthy relationship to money not just so our argument has long been 
financial planning or sorry the financial planners you hire their value add is not in the asset allocation as long as you do the basics but it's really in behavioral coaching and the actual planning for you know your life and uh, all the all the various sort of intricacies that are involved and ways to optimize that every planner is different of course some people are going to give you a lot of different advice but yeah that's we would argue that the real value of a financial planner is not on the investment side but on the everything else side sure do you have any good books that you'd recommend for that hmm or like other resources websites yeah I don't know I'm trying to think offhand I don't know that I have a specific for the personal finance side I'll have to think about that on the investment side I did a article where I asked all my listeners to send in their single number one favorite investing book to give to a high school or a college student that's graduating wants to learn about investing and got something like 300 responses different books and I kind of added them up and calculated them on the blog so if you google something and you add the show notes I think it's number yeah. one investing book map favor it'll show you the top 10 and a lot of those are just sensible uh, investing books and, and many of them do talk about personal finance quite a bit it's hard it's hard to you know, untangle the two, but, but there'll be some good ones on there. Do you have a favorite book that you'd recommend uh, just in general, like either uh, fiction or nonfiction that you've read you in know, like the last few years? You know, I, I say, um, first of all, I think we've given away over a hundred thousand books at, at, since I've been here at Cambria. And so make it, make it available to your listeners too. Um, my, my favorite asset allocation book that we've put out, it's called Global Asset Allocation. And if you go to freebook.mebfavor.com. Uh, you can download a free digital copy. Uh, so I saved you a few bucks there, listeners, if you, if you made it to this point. But, um, but, but something other people have written, I mean, I love uh, the, the book that I talk about often that was a, a early on, it's more than a few years ago, but no one's ever read it. So it's a fun recommendation is Olivia Judson book, who's a professor in, uh, I think, in the U.K., uh, a behavioral psychology sort of evolutionary biology book. It's called Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation. And it's about kind of how animals have evolved and insects and bugs and all the different ways their behavior um, that kind of seems insane when you read it on paper, but then you look around and notice your friends do the same thing. Kind of, it, it takes a step back and say, okay, well, you know, what are my genetic programmings to why I want to buy this Ferrari? You know, or why, why am I why do I have this relationship to money or other people? You know, is it something that is actually in my code from a million years ago that I need to be aware of? Or, you know, is, is there something else going on? So anyway, that, that's one of my favorite books to, to give out to people. On the, on the investment side, I mean, again, a lot that I mentioned in that link and article are, are some pretty great books. So what do you see for Cambria in the future? What, what are you working on that's most exciting for you? We get a lot of crazy ideas, you know, um, we have two white papers that will probably be out by the time this podcast hits the tape. Um, one on tail risk investing or hedging and trying to think of a way to dampen the really black swans or just the left tail events. Uh, we have some articles on how to, you, know, you, you mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but how to uh, effectively tax manage your portfolio. And there's a lot of concepts like dividend investing that when you put through the the taxable lens fare much worse and so a lot of the conclusions actually change 
But yeah, I mean, it's kind of the, the challenge from going from a bootstrap company to a small independent research boutique that manages funds to now, you know, a sustainable institution that's managing over a billion dollars, you know, and hopefully two, five, ten billion at some point, you know, and, and, and at that point, just continuing to best serve the investors, you know, however we can and come up with more and crazy ideas that hopefully somebody will want besides me. Do you have advice that you would give to young people, people looking to find careers that are a good fit for them? Um, I'll answer a slightly different question, which I think will be actually more useful, which if you're a young person, and this actually applies to older people too, almost everyone goes about finding a job and applying the wrong way. And I'll get email and say, hi, hi Meb, or hi, comma, you know, I just wanted to reach out because I'm, you know, graduating from Purdue or wherever. And, you know, I'm studying finance and interested in what you guys are doing and I'd love to further my career and, you know, learn, learn a lot and, and to, um, here's my resume and yeah, maybe we can hop on the phone and talk about my career and how, you know, if there's a good spot at Canberra. And so you just realize that what that person did is all they did on that email is, is off, is make about five asks. So and, and this isn't just to me, and so I'm not trying to sound like a total jerk, but this is the typical way that people apply to jobs and think about getting a job. So you're emailing the potential employer, me, so we'll use me in this example, and saying, okay, I'm emailing you out of the blue, and I'm going to ask you to take your time out to read this email. On top of that, I'm going to take ask you to, to read my resume, and then I want to take you to have time to do a phone call with me and basically explain to me you know, how I can come to your company and learn and then you pay me for that experience. Like, if you think about that for a second, that's 180% the wrong way to go about a job. And the right way to go about it is say, all right, I'm going to be the ideal person that this guy wants to hire or is going to make their life easier. Theo Epstein of the, the Cubs had a great interview where he said his best advice to a young person is, you know, go up to your boss and the same thing would apply for an interview and say, what is the 20% of stuff you hate doing the most or you really don't like doing? whether it's boring, it's monotonous, it's painful, whatever it is, and how about I take it off your plate? So right there, you're already making yourself you know, loved by your boss because you're doing the, taking over the stuff that they don't want to do. On top of that, uh, you're learning part of his job. And so you get kind of two birds with one stone. And the same thing but, but applies to interviewing. And so if you say, look, all right, I'm going to flip that script. You know, the email comes back, hey, Bab, you know, been following your podcast. I've actually listened to every one, you know, and, and have read all six of the books and have implemented my own lifestyle, whatever. Um, you know, here's a couple ideas that I had that I think I could really help you with. And, you know, this is, I'd be, you know, I'll be in LA in two weeks and would love to come by and explain how, you know, I could work for maybe three months or six months for free and do these things or whatever it may be to make your life easier or better or make, Camry run more smoothly. You know, some, so that's a t- totally different email because you're offering, you're offering some sort of value versus all you're doing is taking and asking for someone's time. And I actually, I mean, I, I had the same problem in my 20s. You know, I went about almost every interview acting like myself and, you know, no one wanted to hire Meb the mid-20, <laughs> Meb the mid-20 year old, um, you know, who was, who was uh, not, offering what the people ended up wanting. So it's a, it's a very common mistake that almost 98% of people 
that email me uh, that are young people thinking about careers or it's a you've touched on a frustration, but it's something also that I don't want to see so dismissive about it because I did the same thing, you know, in the 20s. But eventually you learn and even an older person, 30, 40, 50 year old, you know, and you want to get a raise and get um, uh, a promotion. It's another great way to go about it. It's how how can you be of value? Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real privilege to get to talk to you. Thanks. It was fun. And uh, talk to you uh, soon. Thanks again, Matt. Okay. You can find more of Meb's work at mebfaber.com. That's M-A-B-F-A-B-E-R.com, which has links to his podcasts, his books, his white papers, and all the other interesting stuff he does. You can find his business, Cambria Investments, at cambriainvestments.com. I have a ton of respect for him and his work, so it's awesome to have him on the podcast. Thanks again, Meb. The music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion, who in 1999 drove the Kraken back into the Mariana Trench and trapped it there, where it will stay stuck for another thousand years thanks to the power of their tones and melodies. You can thank them and check out their music at cepdx.bandcamp.com, as well as on Apple iTunes and Spotify. If you like Y-Try, do me a favor and hit subscribe. Then, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review so that more people can discover Y-Try. Also, a little bit of an update, I started doing some interviews on Facebook Live, so check those out at Y-Try the Podcast on Facebook. I've also been putting up some writing and some food recipes at nicholaspeel.com. So if you're bored at work or want to find some pretty simple but delicious recipes, that's a good place to go. Links to all the stuff that I've mentioned so far are in the show notes. Thanks for listening.